0: Following is a sermon preached at Grace Church of Orange, California. Join us now as we go verse-by-verse through God's inspired, inerrant, infallible Word. Well, we are uh, once again in Romans 12, and so that's where uh, we have been for the last few weeks, and we will continue. And so, uh, if you are able, would you please turn over there with me to Romans chapter 12. And when you get there, if you would stand, if you're able, we're going to read verses 3 through 8 today. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And Father, we ask that this morning you would uh, exalt your son, Jesus Christ, so that you would uh, open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word, that we would see uh, that Christ is king, that he rules over this universe, that he has uh, given gifts to his church to show that he is the king and that he is victorious. And so Lord, we We praise you and we thank you and we ask that you would change us and help us this morning. Uh, Lord, help me to be clear, help it to be a helpful time for these believers here this morning. Um, Lord, we ask all this so that Jesus would be honored and he would get glory in us and in the world. Uh, Lord, and we ask all this banking on your promises that your word will not return void and that you will exalt yourself. And so we pray all this in the name of Christ, amen. Well, I think we would all agree that we live in a culture that is obsessed with self. Absolutely obsessed with self. I, I was sort of looking around and I thought, I- I'm sure Oprah will have something good on this. <laughs> so uh, so she, she did, of course. Uh, she has said, and this really sums up our whole culture, only make decisions that support your self-image, your self-esteem, and your self-worth. That's sort of the message of our culture, isn't it? Uh, And really, if you look across kind of the scope of of American culture, it's all over. It's in our phrases. Uh, You've got uh, you be you, be true to yourself, follow your heart, love yourself, and lots more that I probably don't even know about. Uh, you've got, I've, I've, I think about this one time, my wife went to a restaurant one time, and every item on the menu, she, she cringes even thinking about this, every item on the menu, you had to order it with a phrase, and they were all, I am something. So the waitress comes around and says, what would you like today? And she has to turn and say, I am radiant, <laughs> or I am wonderful, or I am beautiful, whatever it is, you know, and... Um, it, it just, it's everywhere, it's, it's in our obsession with, with our esteem, our worth, our image, even if you look at the health and fitness culture, it's all over there. It's what I look like, it's how I feel, it's uh, my rights, my choices, my body. You can see it in our divorce rates and that constant refrain you hear, if you're not fulfilled in the relationship, you deserve to get out. Or friendships, only surround yourself with people that totally support you and what you want. This is everywhere, it's even in the structure of our phones. When the iPhone was first released, Steve Jobs pitched it in 2007 as an iPod that could make phone calls. That was the big deal. It had a two megapixel camera. Now, if you go to a wedding, if you go to a concert, if you go to a kid's birthday party, what do you see? A wall of phones taking pictures. The latest iPhone has a 12 megapixel camera and a telephoto lens. That's like professional level right there. And again, I'm not anti-pictures, but even think about what what do we so often use the phone for? A self (laughs) e We're obsessed with ourselves. Again, nothing wrong with pictures. I take pictures. I love pictures. I like remembering moments from, from our family life, but it reveals a heart that sure looks a lot like we might be falling in love with ourselves. And I think maybe the the clearest place you can see this is social media. Social media, both in the unbelieving world and even amongst believers. Uh, Think about this. The whole premise of social media is built around you. I share what I'm thinking, what I'm doing, what I'm eating, and my opinion about whatever I want you to know about me. It's all said whether it's Instagram or Facebook or Twitter, whatever it is, it's, it's how everyone needs to know what I think and what I feel and what I'm doing. Again, I like social media. It's fun. It's not bad. It's not evil. But it starts to reveal a heart that when you step back, it's sort of hard not to think. It almost looks like we're all standing around yelling at each other, look at me, look at me. But the passage in Romans 12 today that we're looking at paints a really different picture, a really different picture. You see, ever since Eve took the fruit and and ate it, the world has been obsessed with itself. The world has always been trying to put itself in the place of God and to prove that we're great and we're wonderful and I'm the best and I deserve honor and I deserve worship and glory. But the church at least ought to be the antithesis to the self-obsession of the world where the world is characterized by people that are self-obsessed, the church ought to be characterized by people that are Christ-obsessed. But, as you know, we're not perfect. We stumble as believers. We struggle as believers. We get pressed into that mold of thinking that the world puts forward. And we can't even do that with the Christian life. We've been in Romans 12, and a lot of times our temptation is we hear... I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. And our mind immediately goes to okay, here are the things that I can do to to worship and honor the Lord, to present myself to the Lord. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's how I'm going to think. Here's the things that I can do. But but Paul's mind actually doesn't go to our individual Christian lives. Sort of interesting. As you saw with, with Newton last week, Paul's mind doesn't go to my Christian life, but to our Christian life together. His mind goes to the body of believers humbly and lovingly serving one another and building one another up. And that is our beautiful witness to the world, that the gospel is powerful to change. When the world looks at us and sees people who really love one another, who really serve one another, who really uh, are working together for the sake of the gospel, they see nothing can do that but the spirit of God the gospel really works. And so this morning, the passage that we're moving into is going to talk about spiritual gifts. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning is spiritual gifts. And so we are in Romans 12, and I do want to set sort of the stage for you as we talk about spiritual gifts. And, and the main thing I want you to get out of this morning is this, use them. We'll talk about what spiritual gifts are we'll talk about all the details but the main thing is what paul is driving at the phrase in here is let us use them you are gifted so that you can use your gift to bless and encourage the body of christ use your gifts so the book of romans is is settled in this place in scripture written at a time after jesus has come to show what is the gospel What is the good news and why is it good news? And Paul hits all these different angles throughout the book of what the gospel is, what it means, the effects of it. And as Newton told us last week, you get to chapter 12 and there's this hinge. Paul's been talking all about the truths of what Christ has done and what the gospel is. And in chapter 12, he turns and says, in light of these mercies, in light of everything that God has done on our behalf, this is now how we live. We present our bodies, our minds, our thoughts, our will, our emotions, it's all his. We present ourselves as a living sacrifice. And then his mind turns to the the gathered body. And Newton talked to us about humility, thinking of one another with sober judgment, with with right thinking about ourselves, with with humility serving one another. And so now we come to our passage today, and we're going to look at it from two, two aspects. The first aspect is going to be, what is a spiritual gift? What is a spiritual gift? And the second aspect is going to be, how do I use mine? How do I use my spiritual gift? What is a spiritual gift? How do I use mine? So, let's get into these verses here. And Paul has just been talking about how we each have a different function within the body of Christ. And then he turns in verse 6 and we're going to draw some things out of this first phrase. We're talking about what is a spiritual gift. And Paul says having gifts that differ. Having gifts that differ. Those first two words, having gifts, tells us the first thing. Paul assumes something there. Did you hear it? If you're a believer, you possess a spiritual gift. Period. They are for every believer. That's the first thing Paul draws out here, that that spiritual gifts, whatever they are, and we'll talk about them, but whatever they are, they're for every believer. They're for every believer. Having gifts, you have one if you're a believer, having gifts, and this next phrase, that differ according to the grace given to us. We'll talk more about this, but what he's talking about is the specific role given to each believer within the body. Paul talks about the grace given to him and his role as an apostle. It's within our role. And here's the point. This variation of gifts. In other places, Paul uses words that talk about the many sides of a diamond or the many uh, colors weaved into a many colored robe. And the idea is that gifts are unique to every believer. Not just for every believer, but unique to every believer. The way that God, the role that God has given you in the body is not fulfilled by any other believer. Gifts are for every believer. They are unique to every believer. They differ according to the grace given to us. And here, this next phrase, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, and here's our main point, let us use them. The third thing, they're meant to be used. They are meant to be used used. I read earlier this week about this guy, um, I think he's since sold them, but he, he was up, I think, in Oregon, and he would acquire violins. I'm talking like hundreds of thousands of dollars for a single violin type violins. This guy had at one time the greatest collection in the world. And as far as I could tell, he didn't, he didn't even play violin. They just, he had them all. Uh, and man, what a sad picture of a Christian Having gifts given by the Lord, a role to fulfill in the body, a necessary spot to fill in the body who doesn't use them, who doesn't use them. And so spiritual gifts, and we're going to talk more about what they are, but they're whatever they are, they're for every believer, they're unique to every believer, and they are meant to be used, meant to be used. So what we're going to do now is step back for a second, and I want to sort of give you uh, the Bible's theology of spiritual gifts short version of that because what we so often do is we get hung up on the sign gifts let's talk about miracles let's talk about speaking in tongues let's talk about healing and we talk all about those and we never step back and get a big picture view of what are spiritual gifts what are we even talking about so i want to do that a little bit this morning and answer this question of what is a spiritual gift the first place i'm going to take you to is ephesians ephesians in ephesians paul is talking about the church and how the gospel works itself out in the church and he says something really interesting here that we almost never think about when it comes to spiritual gifts the point i'm about to make here is that spiritual gifts are of cosmic significance cosmic significance here's what i mean by this in ephesians chapter 3 paul's talking about the gospel and he says in verse 10 through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might or would now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That phrase, rulers and authorities in heavenly places, is a reference to angelic and, and really an emphasis on demonic beings. And Paul says that the church, when the church is functioning as it ought, puts something on display, not just to the natural world, not just to unbelievers, but to the supernatural realm as well. A Couple verses later, one page over, when he introduces spiritual gifts, he quotes a Psalm that's talking about the Messiah as King and how Jesus as the Messiah King will, when he ascends, give gifts to men, their spoils of war. It's the picture of a king coming back with the spoils from war and distributing them among his people. And Paul looks at spiritual gifts and says, spiritual gifts are Jesus's war prizes to his people. So here's the picture in Paul's mind. There is a cosmic battle going on and spiritual gifts when we use them, when we love one another, when we serve one another, when you help another believer in the body, you paint a picture to the seen world and to the unseen world that Christ is victorious, Christ is king, Christ has won, Christ has defeated death and sin and hell. It's so much bigger and deeper than we often realize. We just think, oh yeah, I just I, I, helped, I helped Bill. He needed help moving something. and He's from church and so I helped him. That paints a picture not just to to believers and unbelievers, but to demonic and angelic forces that Christ is king and he is one. Spiritual gifts have a cosmic place. And it's important that we don't forget this. Uh, Even though the world is becoming more and more secular in many ways, there's also an explosion if you look into, uh, there's an explosion in the new age movement. People are thirsty for, for access to spiritual reality. They know that things are real and true. And we even know this. I think often back to, um, do you remember the story of Elisha the prophet? He's, he's in his house and he, they're, they're completely surrounded by an army. And his servant, it says, uh, he wakes up early in the morning and he goes out the door, and I'm just imagining, looks outside, turns back around and says, uh, Elijah, we're in a bad situation. You're surrounded by an entire army. And um, If you remember this story, Elisha prays and says, Lord, open his eyes. And what does he see on the mountainside? Chariots of angelic armies, chariots of fire, it says. We live in a world that is both, has material reality and unseen reality. And we participate in both. And we need to let the world know, Christianity isn't oblivious to that fact. We know the one who conquers and rules over it all. And we serve him and we put him on display. So spiritual gifts are are part of a cosmic, they have cosmic significance. The second thing that I want to mention here, the second passage that talks about spiritual gifts uh, primarily is 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. And the thesis statement of those verses is found in 12, chapter 12, verses four through seven. Now there's a variety of gifts, but the same, same spirit. Varieties of service, but the same Lord. Varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The point here is that spiritual gifts are given for mutual building up, mutual edification, stirring one another up towards spiritual maturity in Christ. That's the purpose of the gifts, not to show off, not to do cool stuff, but to, to help one another grow in Christ. That's why the next chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, is all about love. We read it at weddings, and rightly so. But the context of that whole chapter is about lovingly using our gifts to build up one another in the body. Next, Peter, 1 Peter 4, verse 11, he does something really helpful when he talks about spiritual gifts. He lumps them into these two broad categories, speaking and serving. And you can put all the spiritual gifts within speaking and serving. And what he does, you'll see that, I'll bring this out more later, but He really brings it down to your role within the body, your function within the body. Whether you're opening your mouth and encouraging or instructing or counseling or teaching or whatever it might be, you're either opening your mouth to encourage and edify and build up another believer, or you're doing some type of service with your hands, with your whatever it might be. You're you're, you're doing some type of service to another believer, bringing them a meal, praying for them, whatever it might be. So speaking and serving Peter helps us get those categories. And then lastly, there's our passage today, Romans 12. And as I've mentioned already, the main thrust here about spiritual gifts is that they're to be used. Use them. Let us use them. So a theology of spiritual gifts given in the New Testament is that spiritual gifts are these victory prizes given by the risen Christ, the risen Messiah, to display his victory to the world, both natural and supernatural to show that he's king of kings, lord of lords, and we're to use those gifts, whether they fall in the category of speaking or serving, to build one another up in spiritual maturity. Now, before we move on, I want to hit it from one other angle. I started this week, and as I was studying, I, I started asking all these different people, well, what do you want to hear about spiritual gifts? What question do you want answered? And two came up over and over again how do I know what my spiritual gift is and what's the difference between natural abilities and spiritual gifts? Any of you have those questions? I I had both of those. Um, so as I studied, I feel like, uh, God helped clarify my view and it was really, uh, encouraging and freeing. And so hopefully it is for you too. Um, but when we talk about spiritual gifts, I want to sort of nuance the way we think about them a little bit. We, we tend to do something that's not really helpful. Um, We, even as I've said it today, when we think of spiritual gifts, we immediately take an English concept in our mind. This concept of special abilities given to believers. I heard one guy call them Christian superpowers. We take that and we immediately assume, oh, well, that's what Paul had in mind when he said gift. Well, that word that he uses is more broad than that. And it's not not really fair to Paul to take an English concept and smash it onto what he's saying all the time. When you look at all the passages together, When you take all the data in, I think it is helpful. It's not wrong to talk about them as abilities given to believers, but it's maybe more helpful to talk about God empowering us to fulfill roles in the body, roles or functions in the body. And and I'll kind of explain more of that, um, why that's helpful and how that answers these two questions. But let me just give you my reasons of why I think this role or function idea is much more helpful than emphasizing like a a superpower that you get as a believer. so the first reason is that all of the spiritual gifts passages, they emphasize your role within the body. Uh, when you, even the metaphor Paul uses, he talks about a body, and he talks about the eye and the foot and the hand. He's not talking about abilities, but role or function within the body. Secondly, whenever talks, Paul talks about his own spiritual gift, he's directly referencing his apostleship, his role within the body. He thinks of his own spiritual gift in terms of a role. You can go see that in Colossians one twenty five, Ephesians 3, 7, and 8, Galatians 2.9, 2 Corinthians 13.10. You can look those up. Uh, there's more, but those are sort of the, the clearest ones. Um, also, in every gift list, words about role or function are right there in the immediate context. Take ours as an example. This passage today, one, two verses before, and the members do not all have the same function. And then he goes on to talk about gifts. He does this in all of his passages. And so um, the last reason I would say is there's no spot in the New Testament ever where the writer says, hey, you need to find out what your gift is. Take this spiritual inventory test. There's There's not that anywhere in the New Testament. So let's turn back to our questions. How do I know if a gift is a natural ability or a spiritual gift? Well, the question sort of fades away at this point. Because what you have here, and I may read a little bit because I want to be careful about how I say these things, but w- what, I, what you have is we know God empowers every single gift, talent, skill, ability, experience, training that any person ever has anywhere. Every breath is a gift from him, believer and unbeliever. And so we know that for each person, God has given them skills, experiences, talents, abilities, Desires, passions. And the question is not, well, when I got saved, what did I get zapped with? What special power did I get? (laughs) The question is, how is God going to empower my unique personality, desires, passions, skills? How's God gonna empower that to build up and edify the church? What role can I fill within the body? Because you have a unique role. Think about this for a second. Every believer has a unique role. That means that if you are a believer in this body and you are not actively using your gifts, using the way that God has wired you to bless other believers, we're lacking for it. We're hurting for it. Because every believer has a unique role to fill within the body. So, Same thing with the next question. It sort of fades away. Well, what is my gift? I need to take a test and figure out where I fall. Well, the problem is, even when you look at the lists of gifts that Paul lays out, they're different in every place. Some things are repeated, some things aren't. Some things are mentioned once and then never again. What's the point? He's just giving you a snapshot to say, here's some ways that believers' personalities and passions and skills can work themselves out for mutual upbuilding and edification and spiritual maturity. Now, we're going to see this further on in the verse, but obviously it's better to serve in the areas where you're passionate about and you have skill and you maybe even have training in. That's great. That's better. But at the same time, it's not, uh, you know, well, I have the gift of teaching and so I can't set up tables or chairs. Sorry. (laughs) No, it's where's there a need? What can I fill? What can I do? So I think instead of asking, what is my spiritual gift? It's more helpful, probably more helpful to say, what do I love to do? What has God made me really good at? Where have I served before that I enjoyed? Where is there a need? And then where do I see someone in the body that I can use to bless with these these things? That I can help, that I can encourage towards maturity, that I can uh, come alongside and help them. Think of how beautiful that would be if we were firing on all cylinders in that way every believer, wherever there's a need, yeah, I'm there, let me, I, I'm there, let me help. How can I help? Now, one caveat here. I'm not saying that we erase all role, all, um, all official roles in the church. I'm not saying uh, that it's a free-for-all, just do whatever you want. It's all channeled toward helping one another grow towards Christ-likeness. It's all channeled towards advancing the gospel, advancing God's kingdom. There's still pastors and elders. They are still called to be able to guard sound doctrine by teaching and preaching. And elders are actually required to have ability to teach, not talking about dissolving any defined role in the church. Now, just a quick little picture of what this could look like. Maybe you love art. If you look over there, somebody made that. Someone who enjoyed art and woodworking did that, and it's a blessing. It's helpful to us. It's it's a way that they blessed us. Maybe you can uh, find a way. You know, those it's really popular nowadays for uh, houses to decorate. You have like plaques of scripture, and it's got the verse, and you put the wood up. Maybe you make those for people in the body and give it to them. Maybe maybe you want to encourage others. You you. Uh, You can speak to them. Look for people on the plaza in ways that you can say encouraging, helpful things. Write them birthday notes. Write them notes of encouragement. Call them. Text them. Pastor Mike is amazing at this. He's always texting or calling someone and saying, hey, I love you. I'm praying for you. All the time. Maybe you want to build stuff for VBS or for another, uh, the ministry over in El Medina. Our outreach is there. They need people to build stuff. If you love working with your hands, maybe you can do video editing goodness, we need video, help with video editing, I can tell you that. Uh, we, we could use those skills. Maybe you have financial skills or training, and you could use it to help the broad, the church as a whole, or maybe individual believers in the church need help with finances and how to think through that, and you can help. Maybe you love to organize and plan events. We could use help with that. Maybe you're techie, and you want to think, how can we get the truth out more clearly. How can we help get our, the messages that Pastor Mike preaches to those people in our body that can't come on a Sunday morning? Maybe you have clever ideas about that. Maybe you love cooking. Park ministry needs you. Men's breakfast could use you. There's people who take meals to other believers in our body. Nobody says anything. Nobody knows about them. They just take meals when, when a baby comes or when someone's in the hospital. Maybe you're shy and introverted. Maybe you would do well on the soundboard back there or in, with the slides. God puts all different types in his body, and that's okay. Maybe you love caring for people in need, and you want to see, how can I help you financially? How can, I know you're going through a tough time. What can I pray for? What can I, can I Like I said, can I bring you meals? Can I, there's just all these different ways that the body can encourage and help and strengthen one another. How can I use this to lead others to maturity in Christ, help them along, advance God's truth in God's kingdom? So, that's what a spiritual gift is. Let's talk now and look at how do I use my gift? Or, maybe a more helpful way, how do I fulfill my unique role in the body? How do I fulfill my unique role in the body? So, let's get back into our verses and look now at this next phrase. He has said, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, If prophecy in proportion to our faith if prophecy in proportion to our faith. Let me deal with this really quick because everybody wants to know what's the deal with prophecy? Is it still going on? Is it done? Um, And so what I understand this to be saying, what our church teaches, is that prophecy was an important gift in the early church. It was not different than Old Testament prophecy. It was receiving direct revelation, words from God, meant to be communicated to others. And if you think of it, it makes perfect sense. This early church in Rome, they didn't have the fullness of the scriptures yet. They didn't have... uh, at least when Paul's writing, they don't have an apostle there to walk them through. They're in this whole new era of how God is working in the world and they need prophets to give that revelation. And so that gift was active and helpful and useful at that time, but now has passed away as we have gotten the, what we need in scripture. We have the written revelation of the apostles. And so that gift has passed away, but it was very effective and helpful in the early church. But this phrase that Paul uses, in proportion to our faith, is really helpful. And the first thing I want to give you on how do, I, how do I fulfill my role in the body is with contentment. With contentment. Let me explain what I mean. When he says in proportion to our faith, Newton last week, it was really helpful. He talked about how God has apportioned to each believer this uh, a measure of, of grace, of kindness. Some people, you, you look at some people, and I, I always end up thinking of it in terms of preaching or teaching. You look at some and you say, yeah, they did okay. And then you look at some and it's like, oh man, like, that's a John Piper. That's a John MacArthur. That, I mean, that guy can preach like nobody's business. There's different levels of gifting within the body, and that's okay. And that's okay. We need to be content with what God has given us. We need to be content with the gifts and the role that he has given us to fill in the body in proportion to our faith. Verse 7. These next three things are going to be grouped together and the idea behind them is with humility. We use our gifts with contentment. The next thing we're going to see is with humility. Look here. If service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, Now, I just want to hit real quick, you have service, teaching, and exhorting. Service is a general catch-all word for any type of thing that you would do for the benefit of another person within the body. It it does often end up talking about physical help, but this could be financial help, this could be help in prayer, this could be all kinds of help. It's a catch-all term. You have service, you have teaching. In terms of teaching, we're talking about doctrinal instruction, taking the Bible, opening it up, and explaining its meaning. Exhorting has more of a flavor of calling people to do and be and live in line with what scripture says. So think counseling, think preaching, think things that take the truth and say, live in line with this truth, that's exhorting. But if you notice here, each one, Paul repeats the same phrasing, in our serving, in his teaching, in his exhortation. And the idea here, I think, is is this. Serving with humility, the reason I say that is this. We have sometimes a temptation to try to be everything and do everything. To be supermen and superwomen. And any potential need I see in the church, I go fill it immediately. And while the right heart is behind that, we need to have the humility to realize the body is probably most helped by certain strengths that you have. So serve in those strengths. Sure, if they need help setting up tables and putting up chairs, do it. Do it. But if you're gifted in teaching, if that's the role you're to fulfill, focus on that. If serving, focus on that. If anything else, focus on that. Focus on that. So with humility, not trying to be everywhere, be Superman, but serving with contentment and with humility, realizing that all parts of the body function together. You don't have to be it all and do it all. And then lastly, with the right heart. These last three also are grouped together. The one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. The idea here is, um, again, with this first one, generosity, the one who contributes in generosity. When the idea of contribute is sharing something that you have, anything. Generally, it's talking about financial resources, but this could be time, this could be energy, this could be stuff that you have. It's the, the willingness to share what you have with others. And the attitude behind it, the right heart behind it, is with generosity, open-handedness, wholeheartedness, not grudgingly, not hoping for notice or recognition, not making sure the person knows that, well, I gave this to you and so you're indebted to me. Not not any of that, but with a wholehearted, loving motive. That's a first right heart attitude there. Next, we have the leader. Let the one who leads lead with zeal. Most likely the elder is in mind here because... uh, If you think of an elder, there's no direct human authority over them. And so, especially those who are in leadership positions, but all of us in the body, whatever role we have, we're to have intense effort for the good of the body. That's the idea. This is not the normal word for for zeal. This word is actually found in inscriptions of generals or Roman uh, people who were especially committed to the public good. They would use this word to describe them. So the idea is, as you use your gifts, part of having a right heart is this intense doing your very best for the good of the whole body. Lastly here, we come to the one who does acts of mercy. Again, this is any concrete act to help someone in need. It could be physical need, it could be emotional need, it could be someone who's just beaten down and needs encouragement, but you are acting for their good to to help encourage them in Christ, to show concern for them. And again, this idea here, cheerfulness, wholeheartedly, happily, without grumbling. If, you, um, if you've been in the church for any amount of time, you know that grumbling service is really ugly. Um, we, we need to be reminded that the church won't fall apart without us. Uh, if, if your heart is grumbling in your service, you might need to step back and get right with the Lord uh, Our witness to the world is so much more pure and beautiful when we're all serving one another with joy and happiness and without grumbling. We need to remember that we're not doing the Lord a favor when we serve. We are getting a chance to participate in what he's doing. Think about it. Every single one of our elders and pastors, Pastor Mike, me, all of our elders, we're going to pass away. You all are going to pass away. And the church won't, won't pass away. The Lord will build and sustain his church. And so we have freedom then to serve with joy and happiness and know that it doesn't depend on us. So think about this. Think about this person, this person that's using their gift. This is like if we had an army... We would be an army for the Lord if we were all characterized by this. Someone who is generous from the heart, quick to help in any task, ready to give time, energy, resources, serving with passion, giving their best effort, whether it's setting a table or leading the church as an elder, whatever it is giving their best effort, not seeking someone else's role or a more visible role, but humbly and contentedly serving, not seeking to do everything themselves, but fitting in their unique spot in the church, serving along with where their strengths and passions lie. That is a powerful witness to the world. You talk about a gospel witness, that's a gospel witness to the world when they see that type of church full of those people. So we talked about what a spiritual gift is. We talked about how to fulfill your unique role within the body. The last question is so what? What do you do now? And it really depends on who you are. If if you're a believer who serves over actively, that's that's possible and true of some of us. If you're a believer who serves over actively, check your heart. Is there pride? Is there a desire to, to earn some favor from God or, or get some good standing in the light of other people, in the minds of other people? Are you using ministry as an excuse to ignore other more fundamental priorities and responsibilities to your spouse or to your immediate family? Is serving where you draw your value and your satisfaction from When people say, oh, thank you, you've done so much, and you just really need and crave that. Are you serving with a complaining or a grudging heart? Or, here's something else we can even do. Are you serving because you're annoyed that others aren't? You know, no one has signed up for this, and I can't believe it, I'm doing it. (laughs) That's not the right heart. That's not the right heart. That doesn't honor the Lord. If, If this is you, you may be dishonoring the Lord in your service. You may need to step back. If you're a believer who who serves, not overactive, not underactive, you're just a believer who serves, you need to hear 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. He knows, he sees every second of service toward him. No matter how visible or invisible you think it is, he sees, he knows, and he remembers. If you're a believer who serves underactively, see, some of you will say, I'm, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, and then come to church on Sunday and then head out. That, I'm sorry, but that's not much different than someone who loves to go to the movies and goes every Friday night. You go, you watch, you leave. That's not what it means to be part of a church. You don't go to church. You are part of a church. That's not what it means to be part of a church. Now, I am not saying you have to be at every single event, every time the doors are open, or serve in every possible way. But what I am saying is that yes, you come on Sundays, you gather when we gather but also you're actively asking yourself, based on my desires, passions, skills, training, this season of life that I'm in, what role can I meet? Where are there needs in the body that I can fill? And then you go and do those things. Maybe it's organized, maybe it's visible, maybe it's totally invisible, nobody sees it. But you're filling a role that only you can fill. And if you can't point to, to how you're doing that in some way in your own heart, then maybe you're just a spectator. That sort of leads to this next one. Maybe, maybe you do serve. Maybe you serve a lot in the church. Maybe you've served for years in the church, but you're not really saved. You're not really a believer. Maybe your service is, is a cover for a hard heart. And that service might make you well thought of by everyone. Maybe you're even considered highly among this church. But the Lord knows and the Lord sees your heart. And it's hardened and you haven't truly surrendered to his lordship. And if that's you, I would just say, uh, you don't have to impress him. You don't have to do things for him. You have to trust him, to bow your knee to him, to, to surrender to him as Lord and trust that his death on the cross paved the punishment that you deserved, took the wrath. You need to trust in Christ and be saved. And some of you are here as unbelievers. You say, I, I'm, I'm not a follower of Christ. I know it. I'm... Not really interested in helping at church. I'm not trying to fool anyone. Uh, Maybe you're not so sure about Christianity, maybe you hate it. But as I mentioned back with in Ephesians, the Bible describes that you are under the dominion of Satan. You are in the kingdom of darkness. You hate the light and you will not come to the light. That's what the Bible says. And because of that, you cannot experience the forgiveness and peace and love and joy that Christians have. And you cannot have access to eternal life. You are headed to hell if you reject Christ. Yet, even though in light of all those things, Christ says you can be set free. You can have eternal life if you will bow to him as king, surrender your life, give your life over to him, trust in him, and you'll be given a role within the body of Christ. You'll be empowered to fill a role within this body. You will be given eternal life. You will be given cleansing of your sin, freedom. You'll be given the Spirit if you'll trust in Him. And so, I would encourage you, whatever role you're in, trust the Lord, follow Him, lean on Him, and use your gifts to serve and to love one another. Amen? Thanks for listening. For more information about grace, please visit our website at graceorange.org.